When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul. The show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of entertainment, Hollywood, and sports. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer and current big law media and entertainment attorney. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani, pop culture enthusiast, founder of Lola Media. Currently across the Atlantic, I am back home in the motherland. I'm in Pakistan, Paul, where I grew up in the house that I grew up in. With unfortunately, pretty terrible internet. I don't know what's going on, but here I am. We've made it. You know, Better Call Paul is an international podcast, you know? For me, this week, it was NYC NFT, and one of the firm's clients, my client, Guttercat Gang, had an event. They had many events throughout the week, but they were kind enough to invite me to their closing party, and it was awesome. Such a cool fan base and very like intelligent, cutting edge company. Very excited for the future. I know the market's choppy, but I'm still HODL. <laughs> yeah, man. Look, I'm into it as well. I didn't get to participate in NFT NYC. I had this trip that I had to go on, but I'm in. I've been in. Been in since 2017. Haven't sold anything. It sucks. Some things are down, but this is nothing. This is nothing, man. Throw another one at us. This is peanuts compared to what we've seen in the past. So yeah. been through it before. This is nothing. Yeah, they were giving out free tattoos. I didn't get one, but I was thinking about it. They had a lot of free swag. They were really rewarding to their fans and their holders, their cat holders and all of their NFT holders. But great event. Look forward to more. Great company and great client. And so, you know, Mesh, this is a really sad week for U.S., the Supreme Court, it's not a surprise because the opinion was leaked almost two months ago, but the Supreme Court ruled that Roe v. Wade is unconstitutional and there is no constitutional right to an abortion. Obviously, this is going to have a cascade of impacts. It's uh, certainly a very sad decision from my perspective. Yeah, man. Yeah, it, it was tough. It's really hard to see. It's very sad. It's pretty, it's just nuts. I mean, Look, I'm not a woman, you're not a woman, but we came from women, our, our mothers. I've got sisters, I mean, surrounded by women my whole life. So many friends that I deeply care about. And it's just crazy that men continuously decide what rights women has. And, you know, they don't get to exercise the freedoms that not only they deserve, but they absolutely have the right to. But I think we have to remain optimistic. There's elections coming. We have to have some optimism. We have to think that we can change this and and make sure that women in this country have the rights that they deserve. I'm not ready to give up on democracy. Totally agree. 100%. I could see why some people would feel that way after a decision like that after 50 years. But I think you have to maintain vigilance and try 
to resort to the measures that our founding fathers envisioned to change the political outcome, right? Which is voting, protesting, making yourself educated, letting other people be aware and not in a hateful way. I think it's gotta be productive dialogue. I think you have to try to find common ground and it's not us versus them. We're together. We gotta try to reach a collective resolution. Totally agree. And and I think it's about education and it's about having empathy and it's, I mean, shit, man, men educating themselves on this stuff. I was on Twitter and the stuff that you read, like the lack of understanding of what this all entails, all the different forms of reasons that women might need an abortion, where I think a lot of men just assume it's just really like one or two things and not really being educated on it, not really understanding that. And yet they're the ones who are making the rules. It's all really just disappointing. And But at the same time, education, empathy is absolutely needed so that we can hopefully change this. Yeah. And in some small consolation, I mean, we did pass some gun control legislation got passed last week. So I mean, maybe it's not impossible, right? It's just a matter of getting enough people educated and pulling in the same direction and hopefully reaching consensus, which is what the process is designed to achieve. But we're not going to discuss that topic this week. It's not because we don't think it's important. It's just it's not really our lane, and we're both disappointed. So our topic this week is actually, for anyone that's not a sports fan, if you are a sports fan, you've probably heard about this because it's been one of the biggest stories in sports over the past several weeks month, month and a half. It has to do with PGA Tour, the PGA Tour and an upstart, well-funded Saudi Arabian-backed live golf tour, LIV, which is Roman numeral, stands for 54, who has been throwing a lot of money at the game of golf, signing away large percentage of the top 100 PGA Tour players to play in their events. And we're going to talk about sort of the evolution of this competitive dispute golf in America and sort of legal foundation if the PGA's response were to be challenged. So stay tuned. All right, folks, welcome back. Well, Paul, I'm super excited to talk about today's topic, the PGA Tour versus Live, the new Saudi Arabia Backed golf league. You know, golf is something that I've always been interested in. I never really played it, but I've always respected it. I've always appreciated people's love for it. And obviously, Tiger Woods in, in the 90s just making this a massive sport. It's a massive industry. And I think for the folks to understand the context of what's happening here, this whole PGA Tour versus Live, you know, this now newly started golf league by or backed by the Saudi Arabian Sovereign Wealth Fund, I think it's important to give some context and history of the PGA Tour, how it was formed, like where it came from and how it's become this like massive industry that it is today. So the PGA and the PGA Tour were kind of the same organization and they separated in 1956. The PGA Tour handles all the sort of player agreements and the rules and regulations applicable to the players and putting on the tournaments. And the PGA basically expands the game of golf, teaches the game of golf in communities throughout the states. And so they're different entities. The PGA Tour, which is sort of the subject of today's conversation, is actually a tax-exempt organization, and it's been that way since the 70s. It's a 501c6 organization, which means it's technically a nonprofit, doesn't pay taxes, provided that it can't really make profit, right? So to the extent the revenue exceeds its expenses, 
they have to donate that to charity or, or find another way to sort of move that. They can't distribute it to their owners. So a PJ Tour is actually, unlike other sports leagues, it's owned by the players. So, for example, in the NFL, NBA, NHL, teams have owners like the Jerry Joneses of the world. And we actually talk about this in episode 17 of Better Call Paul. Teams generally have owners in the PGA Tour context. There are no teams. Individual players are their own members, and they collectively own the PGA Tour. And the PGA Tour, there's also the Champions Tour, which is sort of used to be the senior PGA. There's the LPGA. There's about 3,000 or so professional caliber tournament playing golfers in the world. So it's a very elite group of golfers. And as you said, sort of at the very high end, the top 150 are competing in any given PGA Tour event. And maybe the top dozen to two dozen get to be household name status and do very well. You know, they'll make millions of dollars a year through their winnings and also through endorsements. It's very big money, as you said, 24 million active tournament attending fans and millions and millions more people watch golf on TV in the U.S. And the demographic tends to be pretty well off. I think it's the highest average median income of any professional sport demographic. So I think it's 75,000. So it's a big business. They had one and a half billion dollars in revenue in 2021. And the dollars are only getting bigger. You know, they have TV deals with CBS and ESPN and it's high profile. Yeah, I mean, super impressive. Super impressive what they built. Obviously, massive industry. Thanks for breaking that down. But from the player standpoint, I mean, how does the participation work for the players themselves? You know, it's obviously different from like team sports, but like how do the players participate how many tournaments are there? How many like cups are there? What's the breakdown of how that works? It's similar to tennis where you apply from one, then you get into the other, then there's rankings, and then you know one leads to the other. I'm thinking like Happy Gilmore in the movie. He's just breaking his way through, moving a step up each time. There's about 30 or so tournaments a year. If you're a PGA Tour member, you get to choose your own schedule. So you don't have to play a specific amount. You have a lot of control over the tournaments that you play in. But there are point standings and there's incentives to obviously play as much as possible because you can win more. And then there's rankings. So there's four major tournaments, Augusta, Georgia, the Masters. Then there's the PGA Championship, the British Open, and the U.S. Open. And then the end of the season is the FedEx Cup, where there's a a $15 or $20 million prize. So there's rankings that get tabulated throughout the season. And then if you're high enough in the rankings, you qualify for the FedEx Cup playoff, which has a large payout. And, you know, to me, I've played golf, not well. I started because Tiger Woods obviously was dominating the world when I was growing up. And so that inspired me to pick up a set of clubs and and play golf. And I played when I was down in North Carolina. I can't imagine being good enough to get paid to play. It's just infathomable. But the people who are good at that, you know, they can make a king's ransom playing it. And sure, to be making money at golf... (laughs) I mean, you have to be pretty freaking good, right? This is not like casual, I go to Top Golf or I'm at Chelsea Piers hitting these balls. Um, I go, go to tea time with my buddies or I participate every once in a while. I mean, like, you know, these kids, I mean, these adults now, they start at a young age. Like, you want to be a pro at golf, like, you've got to be the best in the world because there's so many people that play. Um, recreationally and casually, and some people play every day, but that's not good enough for them to be the best in the world. I mean, what does it take? I will say with golf, and maybe we could do a Better Call Paul Invitational. Listen, talent will get you pretty far, I think, but ultimately to be good at golf, you have to play a lot. You have to have that muscle memory. It's mental, but it's also physical. 
And so if you live near a golf course and you can get out there once a week or twice a week, you can maybe get pretty good and be maybe a bogey golfer or perhaps better. But if you're going out there a couple times a year, you know, at best and, and having beers with your friends, you're not going to, in my opinion, make much progress. You're losing money because your balls are, you're chasing them in the woods or they're in the water and the equipment's expensive and tee times are expensive. So golf is an expensive game to play, but it is one of those things that if you're good at it, or even if you're not, it's very enjoyable, in my opinion, way to spend some time and relax. And you're, you know, you're out in nature for a couple hours. And it's also social. Like, it's not like you play tennis with someone, you're not really talking to them when you're on the court or basketball, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a social sport and one that, you know, potentially if you played golf really well, it could probably lead to some some good meetings and some good deals. It's something I really wish I learned how to do as a kid, play golf for that reason. I mean, I have friends who've literally raised money just by playing golf with people. Uh, but they're also good golfers, so I think you have to be good at it. But let's actually get into the breakdown of the numbers here because obviously there's competition now in the space. There's a reason for that competition, and players are probably questioning some of the numbers, right? So, like, break it down for us on you know, the revenue that the PGA Tour makes, how the players make money, what's the breakdown from that? What does the revenue model look like? If you're participating in a tournament, it's really only the top 50% of players that are earning some type of prize money or purse, and the bottom 50% are not earning that. I mean, obviously, we've seen, like, numbers go up since the 90s, but break that down for us. I think we can use 2021 numbers as an example. So the PGA Tour... Revenue was 1.5 billion. They paid out around 400 million in prize money throughout their tournaments. And the average tour player had approximately 1.5 million or close to that in earnings in 2021. The leading player was John Rahm. I think he had 7.8 million, but there were four players that had over 7 million in earnings in 2021 from winning, right? From winning tournaments. So tournaments have purses, which is the prize money. Typically, it could be, I think the average is close to $9 million per tournament. And so the winner usually gets like 18% of that. And the lowest place person that gets any money is basically 50 percentile. You get the smallest amount. And then if you don't make the cut, which means half the tournament field doesn't make the cut, you get nothing. And that's partially a result of the fact that the PGA Tour is tax exempt. They can't guarantee compensation. They can have prizes and they can have merit-based compensation, but they can't guarantee it. So basically the average PGA Tour member in 2021 won a million and a half bucks through playing tournaments. And then, as you said, endorsements are a big part of this because last year, Tiger Woods only won 200,000. He was injured most of the year, didn't play in that many tournaments. And he certainly wasn't really in contention for any of them. But so he won 200,000, but he made another 62 million in endorsements. Phil Mickelson had 40 million in endorsements. So the endorsement money at the top is huge. Obviously, Tiger Woods is a household name, once in a generation athlete, in my opinion, the best golfer of all time. But I guess that's up for debate. Jack Nicholas is in that conversation too. But, you know, he's a billionaire in large part, maybe 90% of his career earnings are through endorsements. He has deals with Nike. Take Two, Video Game, Electronic Arts, Titleist. He has all kinds of sponsorships with TaylorMade. Yeah, and Bridgestone. I mean, the guy is an absolute beast. I mean, still kicking, still doing it with endorsements. It is pretty amazing to me 
Think about like golf target demographic in terms of advertisements are the people that are watching it. It's individual. You know, you want to buy the golf clubs. You want to buy the apparel. You want to buy the shoes. You want to buy, I guess, the tires. I mean, it's amazing what these people are able to sell. And obviously that's why they make so much money in endorsements. But like, let's get into the actual, the juice here. The reason why we're talking about this, the competition, the emergence of this new golf league live and why it was created and what it's doing to the players within the PGA Tour, who's going where, is it competition? Is it controversy? How would you describe it? And who is Liv? Like, what are they? What is this organization? And, you know, what is their MO? Yeah, I would call it competition. I think the PGA's response, we'll get into it. So Liv, L-I-V, stands for the Roman numerals 54. 54 has a couple meanings. One, it is the score you would shoot if you birdied every hole in a round of par 72 course. And two, it's the amount of holes in the tournament because they only have three rounds in their tournament. So the PGA has four round tournaments and Liv has three round tournaments. So it's 54 holes. So that's where the number 54 comes from. As you said, it is backed by the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund, which is a sovereign wealth fund that as of my reading has $600 billion to play with. I think most of that comes from oil, but we don't know exactly where it all comes from. And they hired Greg Norman, who is a legendary, very successful former professional golfer called the Shark. He's won major championships and he's the CEO of Live. And so what they've been doing the past couple months is sign. So they have a, an announced schedule with 10 tournaments. Most of them are in the U.S. One of them is in Jeddah. One's in Bangkok. And they are signing away some of the best players in the world. I think they've signed eight of the top 40 and 20 of the top 100 players in the world rankings to play Live events. Now, they're not saying that you can't be on the Live Tour and the PGA Tour at the same time. But the PGA's response has been to suspend any player that plays, any PGA Tour player that plays in a Live event is then considered ineligible and suspended for PGA Tour events. Though there are some carve-outs. For example, the British Open is a major. The governing organization of the British Open has said thus far, Live members are not banned from playing in the British Open if they otherwise qualify. But basically, the PGA Tour is saying you can't be on live and also the PGA Tour. You have to decide. And just to give you an example. So, you know, why would a player sign with live? For example, let's talk Phil Mickelson. There's a couple high profile ones. Phil Mickelson, Dustin Johnson, Brooks Kopka just signed this week. Phil Mickelson, for those that don't know, is arguably, you know, one of the best, if not the best sort of left handed golfer of all time. He has won 90 million in his career and he's made countless millions more in endorsements. And he signed with Liv. Reportedly, he got a $200 million signing bonus guaranteed comp to join Liv. So if you think about it, that's more than he's ever earned in his entire career playing golf. And he's an amazing golfer and he's 50. So the fact that he was able to exceed 30 years worth of golf earnings with this one contract just shows you how much money they have and what these golfers are looking at to join a competitive tour. Brooks Kopka got $100 million. Dustin Johnson probably got north of $100 million. Tiger Woods actually was apparently was offered in the high nine figures and turned it down. So Liv has a ton of money. As I said, $600 billion is what the Sovereign Wealth Fund has. I think they've committed $4 billion to their golf spend so far. And it really is a bit of an arms race with the PGA. The other thing about Liv, like I said, is there are 54-hole tournaments and there's no cut. So everyone that enters a tournament is guaranteed to make something. 
So in their first tournament, which was outside the Centurion Club in London, I think two weeks ago, the winner won $4 million. The total prize was $25 million, And the last place finisher got 120000 And just for context, that would be larger than the payout of any PGA single tournament event. They're throwing bigger dollars. They're throwing guaranteed money, enormous signing bonuses. And there's a lot of reasons from a purely economic standpoint. I mean, putting the human rights violations and other sort of gray areas around associating with Saudi Arabia and potentially the source of the money, putting those aside from a purely economic perspective, what the players are seeing is much bigger dollars, a much more condensed schedule, guaranteed compensation, and the ability to spend more time with their family, right? Because if you can make 100 million as a signing bonus, and that's more three times, for example, in the case of Brooks Kopka, what you made in your career, that's a pretty compelling offer. And it's interesting because weeks ago, Brooks Kopka said that he wasn't interested in joining Liv and he wanted to play the best and the best in his view stayed in the PGA Tour. And so the fact that he flip-flopped and signed and took all this money, I mean, is a little bit surprising, but when you hear the dollars that are getting thrown out there, it's not necessarily, it's a rational decision, I think. Yeah, I mean, if you're a player right now in today's world, you could get money up front, a lot of it, but something that's brand new that, you know, it's unclear where it's going to go. It doesn't have the legacy and the brand that the PGA Tour does. And you don't know if you're going to be facing the best, the best, the best in the world. And I think for a lot of people at the top of their game, yeah, they want to know that they're playing the best in the world. They want to earn, like there's something about that that they earn, like I am the best. I'm part of this legacy. I'm part of this history. I'm winning here versus like, do I want to get a massive payday? And if I take that deal, do I potentially get to then partake in the PGA Tour based on what's going to happen with Liv? It's too early to tell. Any new entity can be exciting. And I think it's exciting for the players, but will it last? And so I guess the question is, if you're a player, like, what do you do? Because sure, you could get a good payday, but then you could potentially not participate in the PGA Tour and then in the tournaments that allow you to make it to the big ones and there's suspensions happening and there's banning of players happening. It's a little bit tricky, no? Yeah, it's very tricky and it's evolving right before our eyes. I mean, a lot of players haven't left. Like I said, the fact that they've signed eight of the top 40 means that 32 of the top 40 have stayed with the PGA Tour because presumably they made offers to all 40, right? Why wouldn't they? I mean, the live. So I think some players that are competing, it's not just about the money, clearly. Sometimes it is about being the best. And the people who are winning PGA tournaments now, it's kind of a younger generation in the mid-20s, early 20s, early 30s. Those golfers are placing and in contention to win tournaments and major tournaments on a consistent basis. And none of them have gone to live yet. But it's interesting. I mean, if you're Brooks Kopka, you're early 30s. He's won four majors. He was incredibly dominant five, six years ago, and he's been in and out of the top 20. He's dealt with injuries. He hasn't really been in contention in a while. And so I would take, I mean, I can't criticize someone for taking 100 million. He's proven that he can succeed at the highest level of the sport. He won four majors. It's a financial decision, right? Like totally. lawyers would go to a law firm that offered to triple their compensation, right? Like, so, totally. you know, why, why is it fundamentally different? I guess the source of the money is one question, but I think we can talk about it sort of as we conclude the episode. To your point, let's say the live folds in a year or two years, they run out of money, not that they would, but let's say they choose to spend it somewhere else and decide not to spend it on golf. Maybe players that were banned from competing in the PGA, maybe they try to file an antitrust lawsuit and say, hey, this is anti-competitive. You got to let us back in. 
So we can talk about antitrust and how it sort of plays out in sort of legal context and in the sports subcontext of that. But that's always a possibility. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, look, I'm one to believe that competition is always good. I think it's good for players. If players feel like they're not being compensated to the amount that they should be, you know, you need something that is brought in there to push that up a bit. And I think we've seen it happen before. I know specifically watching the UFC is an example of like individual fighters that fight within the UFC. There's a lot of complaints about the money that is being passed around. Obviously, if you make it to the top, you're getting paid really, really well, potentially. But the bottom don't get paid that great. And so a lot of them will jump and they'll go to 1FC or Bellator and some of the other ones that are handing out big, big checks. Some of them are stuff that I'm just like, you know, I don't know why you want to go to the bare knuckle league or some of these other things, but they have a ton of money. I don't know if they'll ever last, but people are taking those checks, but they're usually people that are on the outs anyways, where it's like, look, I'm, I'm not the best in this league anymore, but I still have a name. I'm going to get paid and they're going to go do that. But I think the ones who are the best of the best stay in the UFC. And I think we've seen that in other avenues, like the WWE more scripted, but similar thing. Like they will get the WWE's one that has all the eyes. That's where the more prestige, if you're a wrestler is. And some of you might go to AEW cause they've got some new money and it's fresh, get a payday. But then we've seen with some of them, they go back to the UFC once they get their payday. So who knows what happens here? Maybe it's a few folks that get money and then go back. I think what you're talking about is competition, right? Competition is inherently, yes. you know, free market economy perspective, competition is inherently good. That's sort of one of the fundamental principles of the U.S. economic model, going back to Adam Smith, Wealth of Nations. And to be clear, this entrance of the live, the emergence of, of live hasn't been all bad, right? The PGA Tour has responded with several pro player developments. They've said they're going to increase the pot. They're putting another collectively 54 million in terms of the purses for upcoming tournaments. They're gonna increase payouts to 20 million. They're adding three tournaments with $20 million payouts. So they're trying to become more competitive with Liv in terms of the finances. Now they can never compete with Liv on a level playing field there. They don't have the sort of resources of a sovereign wealth fund and they can't guarantee compensation and maintain their tax exempt status but they are trying on the margins to make the game more compelling and more lucrative. And let's be clear, I mean, since the 90s, right, when Tiger Woods, just looking at the numbers, when Tiger Woods sort of first came on the scene, the average golfer was probably making, you know, pro golfer was probably making $150,000 to $200,000 in winnings. Right. Now that's 7X, right, because of the growth of the game. So it's not as if conditions weren't improving for golfers. The question is, would a rival golf league increase dollars overall, increase viewership overall such that it would be better or would it hurt the game? And we don't know. I mean, that's an open question. I think so far the PGA has responded in two ways. One is to sort of close the gap financially and make the game more economically compelling for its players. And two is to suspend the players that join a rival league. So there's both a carrot and a stick. And the stick may be cause for antitrust concern. But I think the broader question is, is this good for golf? And to your point, Mesh, let's not ignore the fact that the PGA, as a nonprofit, donates an immense amount to charity, right? Close to $3 billion over the past 40, 50 years have gone from PGA tournaments to charity. 
and they grow the game. They invest in communities. They build courses. So while it is a sport that generally caters to a more wealthy demographic and it's expensive to play, they are growing the sport. They're giving back to communities in a meaningful way. And it's not clear that Liv is going to do that. It's not clear. It, I'm not saying they've said that they won't. I'm just saying it's an open question what their motivation is. Is it really, are they just trying to become, I think the term is sports washing? Or are they trying to sort of obfuscate their human rights violations by getting into sports? Are they trying to cater international influence or raise their profile by getting into sports? I don't know, but you know, sports are big dollars. There could be a return there. They may, you know, like Qatar is hosting the World Cup this year. That was a big play for them. And that obviously required a huge investment. So there could be perfectly rational motivations for Saudi to want to develop its professional sports business. And if you think about the dollars they're spending, $4 billion sounds like a lot. But as we said in episode 17, Chelsea's peanuts. Well, Chelsea sold for $5 billion, right? <laughs> and that was as sort of a oligarch yeah, yeah, yeah. sanction forced fire sale. And it's still $5 billion. So $4 billion, you said it's peanuts compared to the sovereign wealth fund amount. But also it might be a better return than just buying a team and competing within the Premier League or within the NFL, right? You're kind of influencing an entire sport by creating a rival league. Yeah, it's like an arbitrage opportunity. <laughs> like who has sat there and thought, let's create this league in golf that has never seen anyone else create one. I am one for legacy though. I do appreciate legacy and brand and the history that's been created in this stuff. And I think that the PGA Tour has that going for them. And obviously if they raise certain numbers, now you can't go over the top. Obviously Liv has an investment amount of money to get this thing kicking. Who knows if that can be sustained over the course of like a decade, if that's how long they can go for. Like that's a lot of money to be passed around, but it might be enough for them to just get kickstarted. This reminds me very much, Paul. I don't know if you're like, a, I know I mentioned wrestling earlier, but it's like mid nineties WCW Nitro versus WWF Raw. Yes. The Monday Night Wars. I remember. Turner versus Vince McMahon. It was like a real rivalry. Wrestlers were going from one to the other. There was contracts being back and forth. And eventually the WWE, now E, bought the WCW and they brought them all under one roof again. But that was pretty intense. Like It was two competing leagues and one had the backing of a broadcast company that said, hey, we can go compete with this like mammoth of WWE. But it did create more competition and made things more entertaining. And eventually... You know, one reign. There's examples of this, right? The AFL and the NFL merged to create the modern day NFL. ABA and the NBA merged to create the modern day NBA. So competition isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's fundamentally a good thing, but free markets have to have boundaries. And the way that we enforce competition or promote competition in the legal regime in the U.S. is through antitrust law, which stems from the Sherman Antitrust Act, which basically says that unreasonable restraints on trade, are illegal and monopoly behavior, a certain anti-competitive behavior that leads to monopolies is also illegal. And there's very complicated rules and enforcement with this and how things are analyzed at a court level, which we can discuss in a sort of part two episode. But from a high level perspective, basically companies that agree or collude to restrict competition generally run afoul of antitrust laws where that's the risk and consumers are hurt when competition is restrained, right? When prices go up and supply is restricted, that's classic anti-competitive behavior. That's what monopolies can do. And that's why they're in theory bad. But 
sports generally, MLB is specifically exempt, and other sports are generally kind of de facto exempt from antitrust laws because teams and leagues basically need to establish baseline rules and regulations and compensation structures for them to even have a product, right? Because you couldn't have 32 different teams using, for example, like different size golf balls or different length clubs or different size basketballs, or you play a basketball game, the hoop has to be the same height. The dimensions have to be the same wherever you go from city to city. Otherwise, you know, you're not going to be able to have a standardized league. So there's obviously a justification for having this sort of cooperation among teams. And it's not viewed as anti-competitive because the overall result is you have this product that has to be standardized in order for them to really make something that consumers want to watch. And that allows them to sort of collectively bargain and establish rules for owning teams and for assigning players and for compensating players and for negotiating broadcast and radio rights and for dividing up the country in things that would, outside of the sports context, be seen as anti-competitive and the violation of antitrust. Within the sports context, it's often permitted. And so that's a really complicated question and how that would apply if someone in the live were to sue the PGA, you know, I don't know how it would play out, but we can certainly talk about it in another episode. Well, dude, I mean, I think it's all very interesting and it seems like to be just the beginning of this thing. Honestly, this is one that I am excited to watch and see what happens and keep track of it. So thanks for educating us on the PGA Tour and the history of golf in America, Paul. And I look forward to caddying your next uh, golf outing. Everyone, thank you for listening. Let us know if you have any questions or if you want to hear a part two. And uh, make sure you're subscribed to us on Spotify, Apple, wherever you choose to listen, and follow us on Instagram at Better Call Paul the Podcast. This episode is edited and produced by Valentino Rivera, Marco Seiler Gonzalez, with assistant producer Justin Sanchez and assistant research producer Haas Nasser. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>